Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Amen. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Harbor, guys. So thankful that you guys are here with us. Hey, uh, why don't you guys go ahead and grab a seat? We're going to dive into our scripture tonight. If we haven't met, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and I'm super thankful uh, that you guys have joined us this week. I think it's going to be a really special night tonight. And uh, yeah, pumped that you guys are here. If you want to turn in the scripture right now to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, uh, it's probably on like page 2 of your Bible, something like that. And uh, I'm going to walk over here and grab my notes. But uh, we're in the middle of a series entitled Myself the God. Myself the God. And it is a journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Really believing that God is going to do some special things through this series. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are some of the most confusing and uh, wild and crazy events that happen in all of the Bible. Anyone ever uh, just gone through and read the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Have you guys done that before? Anybody done that? Anybody been like, what's happening in the first 11 chapters of Genesis sometimes? Yes, okay. So we're getting to some, so th- th- honestly, like this week is gonna be uh, like very interesting, but, but I'm telling you, man, it's, about, it's gonna get wild, okay? Say really quick, say it's about to get wild. Okay, you guys are here. I love it. Amazing. Okay, so we're going to dive in. But first off, I want to, uh, to just kind of share a thought with you to open up. Okay, so if you, if you travel and especially if you go to a place that is kind of a famous place, before you go, someone will probably tell you something like this. They'll say, that place used to be really awesome, but it's gotten like super commercialized before. Uh, People might even say something like, it's really turned into a tourist trap. Has anyone ever heard of the phrase tourist trap before? And uh, I have experienced this before. Um, If you go to really any sort of like monument or significant place or place where people like to flock to, at some point it turns into a tourist trap. uh, if If you go to like, say for example, like the Eiffel Tower, okay? Like you're gonna see the Eiffel Tower It's going to be incredible and amazing and beautiful. But at the same time, there is going to be all of these people trying to sell you stuff. If you go to the Colosseum, like if you you see this Colosseum, it's like mind-blowing because it's this ancient structure. And it's amazing and insane and incredible. And if you close your eyes and kind of picture, you can almost imagine to yourself like, that you are there and you can see and imagine and experience what it was like to live in 1 AD in Rome or whenever, you know, 70 AD in Rome when they built this thing. And then you open your eyes and someone is shoving a spray painting of Bob Marley in your face and they're trying to get you to buy it or they're trying to get you to purchase a fidget spinner. It's a tourist trap. And It's kind of interesting because I feel like on the one hand, you see this thing and you're like, man, I can almost imagine what it used to be like. But then on the other hand, it's so different because it's been completely transformed and completely changed from how it used to be. And that's kind of what is going to happen as we look at Genesis chapter 2. 
Genesis chapter 2 is actually the last perfect moment in human history. There is really only two pages in the Bible of perfection. Everything's going to break next week. Next week is the worst news in human history, okay? So come back. It's going to be awesome. No, it's going to be very helpful and very incredible. Uh, But this is the last moment of perfection. And we are going to see here in Genesis chapter 2 how God actually designed humanity. And I'm telling you, we're going to read 21 verses. And it's going to seem at first glance like there's just a few stories of how God created the world and how God created humans. But it is so chock full of significance and meaning. Like, any controversial topic on the news can find some sort of answer in Genesis chapter two. I'm telling you that, okay? We got gender in Genesis chapter two. We got marriage in Genesis chapter two. We got the sanctity of life. We got work in Genesis chapter two. We got the sanctity of unborn. I mean, literally like we were up in my office a few hours ago and my team and I, were, we were trying to decide which controversial topics to talk about because, like, we don't have time to talk about them all tonight, okay? Like, that's how, like, chock full of meaning this thing is. But I'm really excited. We're going to dive in. Gen 2, we're going to start in verse 4. I know I just prayed, but I'm going to pray really quick and ask God to bless the reading of his word. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time where we get to read from your word. Please speak to us tonight. We believe that you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Genesis chapter two, verse four, are you there? If you don't have it, you can jump on the screen. Here we go, Gen two, verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when there was no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So what the writer here is doing is he's giving a little bit of a poetic recap of Genesis chapter 1. As we learned last week, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was outlined in the first chapter of the scriptures. And now this author is kind of writing a poem, kind of reciting what God did in the first chapter. Now it's really significant here. And if you look in your Bible or even up on the screen, you're going to see that it says the Lord God made the heavens and the earth on that third line. And it's going to say the Lord in all capitals. Now a little Bible reading tip for you. Whenever you're reading through the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, and you see the Lord in all capitals, L-O-R-D, that is because in the original Hebrew Bible, the Lord there is actually the name Yahweh. That's God's name, his personal name that he gives to his people. God has a lot of names in the Bible, but Yahweh is his most holy, his most perfect name that he gives specifically to his people to let them know his love for him and his relationship with them. So what's interesting is that in the first chapter, God is only listed as in the Hebrew Elohim, which means God. We're thinking about a powerful, mighty being. 
Now, moving into the second chapter, he is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And what, here's what a commentator says. In contrast to the use of chapter one, Elohim, with its emphasis on the sovereignty and power of God, this passage uses the name Yahweh with its emphasis on the personal and covenantal relationship of God. So what we see here is that in chapter two, God's gonna get a little bit more personal. He's gonna move from this powerful being that spoke the universe into existence and there's gonna be some intimacy and some closeness with his creation in chapter two. Verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So Genesis 1, an overview of all creation. And when God creates life in Genesis 1, God speaks and life is created. God speaks and there's birds. God speaks and there's fish. God speaks and there's animals. But now in Genesis chapter 2, what we learn is that God does something beyond speaking for human beings. He actually gets down in the dirt and literally handcrafts and hand molds human beings with his own hands. Humanity has been handcrafted by God. And then God does something else. He actually breathes into human beings the breath of life. Life comes through God. What I love is that as you continue to study through the scriptures, what you see is that human beings are still handcrafted by God. This isn't just the first man and woman that this happened to. Listen to Psalm chapter 139, verse 13. David writes and says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So literally every single person in here has been handmade by God. There's no mistakes. Every person in here has been handcrafted, intentionally designed by the heavenly father. In case you were wondering, this is why Christians believe that abortion is wrong. This is why Christians are pro-life because we believe that every single person has been made in God's image. That because every person has been made in God's image, they carry value because God has actually formed them and created them. Now, if, if there's someone in here and maybe you, you've had an abortion, you, you carry that shame and you carry that, that guilt, I'm not here to, to, to scream or yell at you because I really believe that God loves you. I believe that we love you and that we welcome people here. None of us here are perfect. Every one of us could stand up and say things that we regret that we did. And there's grace and mercy for every single person in here. But the fact is that every single person has value and Christians stand on the fact that every single person carries value and dignity because they were handcrafted by God. Let's keep reading verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see that God creates this garden for people to live in. And a lot of scholars actually believe that Adam is who wrote this chapter of the scripture. And so you can almost imagine that God created Adam and then Adam is actually getting to watch God build this garden for him to live in. That's pretty cool. And so Adam's describing it. And he describes that there's these trees that are good for food. There's the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're gonna find out a little bit more about this in just a minute. All right, who's ready for some geography? How many people were like, man, I love the Bible, but I just wish it had a little, I wish there was a little more geography at the harbor, you know? That's what I want. That's what this thing is missing. All right, well, I'm glad that you asked. Here we go, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. Now, I know some geography nerds out here, you're like, isn't Pishon the river that flowed around the entirety of the land of Havilah where there's gold? And the answer to that question is yes. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there was gold. Now, the next question is obviously, is it good gold? And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium, is that, is that how you say that? Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Interestingly, if you look at a current map of the Middle East, you're gonna be able to find the Tigris and Euphrates River. You are not going to be able to find the Pishon and the Gihon. And a lot of people who are maybe critical of the Bible would say, okay, well, this is a great reason to say the Bible is absolutely wrong. Uh, there is these no, no rivers. There's not a place where these four specific rivers meet. So clearly the Bible doesn't know what they they're talking about. Now, I, I guess that's true, but I would like to suggest to you that um, there is actually a study of science that studies how rivers change over time. The area of science is called fluvial geomorphology, something that I wish that I could grow up and be. Uh, there's actually, you can become a fluvial geomorphologist. Look at this. Anyone who wants to move to Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and to be a fluvial geomorphologist, you're welcome to fill out a resume. It is a full-time job, offers 56K per year, plus benefits. So uh, yeah, things are going pretty well. But here's the interesting thing about fluvial geomorphologists. They study the fact that rivers can change and even dry up. Very often, um, it, it's due to a man-made thing, like a man-made kind of civilization will happen and the man will redirect the river. The other interesting thing is that if a catastrophic natural event happens, it can alter the course of a river. One recent river was changed course due to a hurricane. But let's say, for example, something happened like, I don't know, a worldwide flood. That might change the course of a river. And you may possibly find out if you keep sticking with the series that there might be a worldwide flood coming up. Don't wanna spoil it, but it's happening in like four chapters. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat, 
you shall surely die. Now, this is the first time in the scripture that God gives a command that has a warning attached to it. And God gives this command to humans and he says, you can choose to do this. You can choose to continue to stay in the garden, to be blessed, to experience every tree, everything. Or if you eat of this one tree, there are going to be consequences for those decisions. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, if you're reading the scripture and if you've been reading from the very beginning, your ears are gonna perk up when God said it's not good. Because seven times in Genesis one, God says it is good. Creation is good. The earth is good. The oceans are good. The sun, the moon, and the stars are good. Animals are good. People, very good. But then all of a sudden, God says it's not good. And he says, it is not good that man should be alone. And then God comes up with a solution. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. What's beautiful about this is that God is actually partnering with humanity to bring order to creation. That God isn't just saying, hey, I'm gonna call everything, I'm gonna do everything here, you just kind of like run along. He's actually inviting mankind into the process and saying, hey, this beautiful creation, like I want you to be part of creativity. I want you to be part of, of bringing beauty and bringing flourishing to this earth. The man gave names Verse 20, to all the livestock and to all the birds of the field and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, this is kind of like a very sad and also kind of awkward note at the end. Because God is like giving Adam this task, but then at the same time, it almost seems like God is like, if you find someone in the uh, animal kingdom, like go for it, you know? And that's not what God's saying. God is proving to Adam that there isn't going to be anyone here that's like you. And you almost picture like Adam like names the final one, we'll call you warthog. And the warthog walks away and there's no more animals left and Adam's shoulders droop like Charlie Brown and he's like, but I'm all alone, God. You know, he's like so sad or something. Like he just, it's like, but for Adam, there was no helper fit found for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there, there's a lot to cover in that sec section right there, okay? Can anybody agree, like, that was a lot. And we actually are gonna cover it in a second. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to it and come back and explain a lot and talk through a lot of that. But for now, uh, I wanna move to verse 25. But first, do you guys wanna hear like, a cheesy preacher slash cheesy dad joke about this section. Is anybody cool? 
Someone's like, no, I actually don't. Let's just move on. Um, why why was, was the woman called woman? Answer, because Adam woke up, saw a naked chick, and went, whoa, man. That's why. Thank you. I will be here all night. Um, they actually teach you that day one of seminary. They're like, you have to use that every time. And I'm like, dang, okay. No, just kidding. Uh, verse 25, last verse we're going to read. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I know that's kind of a, an interesting, fascinating verse. I actually would argue that it's one of the most important verses in the scripture. And I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. So here we are. We've learned how God created mankind. And I want to think back for a second to Taurus Trap. Because all of us in here have seen what mankind is capable of, both beauty and amazing, and also devastating and horrible. And so we gotta remember that this moment is a moment that God designed and said, this is how humanity is supposed to be. This is what humanity is supposed to do to flourish. And even though we see a lot of examples, both good and bad, we're gonna get a chance to glimpse right now into what God actually designed for humanity. And so with the rest of my time, I just want to share five big takeaways for how God actually designed humanity. I'm going to tell you right now, the first one's going to be the longest. So if you're counting in your head and you're like, this one's going really long, I'm getting worried. The first one's going to be the longest. We'll move quickly through the next ones, okay? So, you know, we're good. First thing is this, God's design shows us the value of humanity. God's design shows us that human beings are actually insanely valuable. I love that God speaks everything, but he takes the time to actually craft humanity. Last week we learned from Genesis chapter one that God speaks to himself as the Trinity and he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God makes both male and female in his image as valuable. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, uh, the, the ancient Hebrew was actually called, God made him in imago Dei, the image of God. What does that mean? So in ancient kingdoms, if a king or an emperor had a huge, massive land, they didn't have like, CNN and newspapers and TVs and things like that where you would actually know your king. And so what the king would do, because he wanted everyone to know, like he's the king. What's the point of being the king if no one knows you're the king, right? And so what he would do is he would set up these statues all over the land and the statues were called images of the king. So whenever you saw that statue, you would say, that's my king. I know who that is. I see who that is. That's the king of this land. And in the same way, God created us as human beings. And he said, I want you to be proclamations to each other, to all of creation, even to the spiritual beings to say, this is how awesome and this is how glorious God is that he would create such an amazing people. When original sin entered into the world, when the fall happened, the image of God was, was fractured in us. It was broken. There are still pieces of it, but, for the mo but, but it's not how it used to be. What's interesting, though, is 
that it says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the perfection. When we look at Jesus, we see God. And it also says in the scripture that as you and I start walking with God, we get, tra- we get to be transformed into God's image. So what's amazing about that is that even though right now, because of sin, the brokenness of the image of God is evident in all human beings, but as Christians, as we grow to know God, and as we grow to follow God, we actually get to look more and more like God. And so we can be those statues of God to the world. We can be the people that the world looks at and says, this is what God looks like. This is how God is. This is how God's heart is for the world. That's the call for every Christian. What's important to know is that it says male and female. So I wanna take a moment and I wanna talk to all my strong, independent ladies in the house today. Can I I do that for a second? Can I take a moment? Okay. So there's a couple of, first off, a lot of people think that the Bible is like anti-woman or it's like chauvinistic or it holds up the patriarchy, all of these things. And and even reading a couple of these scriptures, you can kind of like maybe get a little bit triggered to thinking like what's going on here, okay? So I just wanna explain a couple. First off, I wanna talk about the idea of helper. At first glance, with our modern ears, helper can kind of seem a little bit like, you know, like, like, I don't know, like, yeah, you guys are our little helpers, you know? Like the men are doing the real work and the women are the little helpers, you know, whenever we need something, right? Like it can kind of seem like that. But I wanna tell you, it's actually not like that. Check this out. The word helper in Hebrew is the word azer. Everybody say azer. Listen to what Carolyn C. James says in her book, Half the Church. She said, scholars tallied up the times azer appears in the Old Testament. It appears twice in Genesis in reference to women, but it appears 16 times for God listed as Israel's helper. So I'm gonna give you a couple of those examples. In Deuteronomy 33, 26, it says, there is none like God who rides through the heavens to your azer, to your help. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He is our azer and our shield. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my azer come from? My azer comes from the Lord. Psalm 146, blessed is the one whose azer is the God of Jacob. So what I need us to realize here, and I need us to wrap our minds around here, is that when the Bible talks about helper here, we're not talking about like, woman, why don't you go get me a Budweiser and a sandwich, okay? Like that's not what it's talking about. The picture here is that Azer is a strong warrior and that women and men together partner together to pursue God and to build God's kingdom on this earth. So that's very significant. The other one that I wanna talk about for a second is this idea of, of from man's side. And I've heard people kind of sort of make a joke like, yeah, men were created first, so obviously that means we're better. And you know, you came from our side, you, like, you wouldn't even have life without us and things like that. So like, there's kind of like, okay, is, that, is this like, like, what's going on in this section? Well, first off, there is a Jewish um, like proverb and it went something like this, that women was made not from 
Adam's head, suggesting superiority to him, nor from Adam's feet, suggesting inferiority, but from his side, indicating equality and companionship. But there's something even better here. I've always wondered before, I'm like, why did God create Eve from the side of Adam? Like, that's, that's like weird. I don't understand it. Why didn't he just create them both together? But, but check this out. I, I learned this this week, never knew it before, never heard it before, blew my mind. In scripture, there is another Bible character that like Adam went into a deep state of unconsciousness, had a wound on their side, and then a bride came forth. Does anybody know? Jesus. Jesus died. He was pierced from his side and God made the bride of Christ, the church. When I heard that, I was like, like mind blown. What this means is that from the very beginning of creation, literally before the fall, before sin, thousands of years before Jesus, God was already telling the story of redemption. This is possibly the first reference to Jesus in the entire Bible. And before even sin entered the world, God said, I have a plan for redemption that my son is gonna die for the sins of the world and he is going to get pierced on his side and he's going to go to the grave, but I'm gonna raise him up. And when I raise him up, he is going to have a bride that he loves and that he serves and that he cares for. From the very beginning, God is looking forward to Jesus. So a lot of people ask the question, and honestly, this is actually a question that, that we as like staff get a lot. Like, are men in authority over women? And like, help me understand that. What does the Bible teach about that? Um, okay, so, so there's a couple things here. First off, all men are not in authority over all women, okay? The Bible does not teach that. The men in here, you can't just be like, well, uh, anyone, woman in here, the Bible commands you to submit to me, okay? Like, that's, that's not the case. Okay, there's two instances of spiritual authority talked about in the Bible. First off, there is spiritual authority given to a man over his household, over his wife and over his kids. Now, some of us have grown up maybe in households where that was abused. There was spiritual abuse, there was spiritual neglect, maybe the father domineered over the family and, and didn't love and serve them. But the example of spiritual authority that is given is that of husbands loving their wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. So this means self-sacrificial, serving love, literally laying down his life for her. That's the kind of spiritual authority and the leadership that husbands are called to. In addition to that in Ephesians 5, both men and women are committed to submit to each other, submit to one another. The other instance of spiritual authority is that elders of a church are given to lead the church itself. Now, there are some people who would say that both men and women could be elders. I personally believe that the scripture says that the, the office of elder is reserved for men. We can argue and debate about it if you want. I don't think you're going to hell if you believe that elders can be women, but I, I personally believe from my reading of the scripture that that is the case. We'll have another teaching on that another time because I don't want this to go for six hours. But even in this situation, some of us have had examples of, okay, bad spiritual authority, spiritual authority who have abused their power. We talked about this during our church hurt series a few weeks ago, but here's the thing. First Peter five, elders 
who are the spiritual authority, are commanded to love and serve the church as willing and eager examples. And in 1 Peter 5, once again, we see a command for everyone to mutually submit to each other. And so even in spiritual authority, there is a command for whoever's in authority to lead as a servant leader, to lay down their life, to actually be the first one to sacrifice, not the first one to say, I'm in charge and I'm awesome, and to literally live out the example of Christ as the church. So why did I go into all that? First off, not all men are in charge of all women, okay? Within marriage and within the church, husbands and elders demonstrate servant leadership, leading, serving, and mutually submitting. And secondly, women can hear from God and can serve with spiritual gifts, both inside and outside the church. In the New Testament, women are the first preachers of the gospel because women are the only ones who are courageous enough to actually go to the tomb and see that Jesus is resurrected. They come back and they tell the apostles and the disciples who Jesus had actually been investing into for like three years, who were like cowering in a corner. So they are the first ones to preach the gospel, which means women can preach the gospel. The daughters of Philip prophesied, which means that women can hear from God. And women were actually the first ones to receive the gospel in Philippi. All that to be said, not only does the Bible not degrade women, but actually the Bible puts a very high uh, value on women in the same way that the Bible puts a high value on men. In fact, if you look at the history of the world, where the Bible has been preached and where the image of God is believed, women are actually upheld and valued at a much higher level than they are in other areas of the world. Listen to this. Once again, from Carolyn C. James. It appears that more girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men were killed in all the wars of the 20th century. So in some societies where the image of God is not valued, then males are looked at as more important or better. And so men and women, they don't want to have males, so they kill, they don't want to have women, so they kill their, their daughters, or women are looked at as second-class citizens. Research indicates that worldwide, around 3 million women and girls have been kidnapped or sold, sometimes by their own families, into the sex trade, which in effect means they're the property of another person, and in many cases could be killed by their owner with impunity point of all of this being, I know this is kind of heavy and a very, very kind of like, like spending a lot of time on this, but I want to share this, that the scripture holds women at a high value. The scripture holds unborn children at a high value. We haven't talked about racism, but the scripture holds all races at a high value. Racism, unfortunately, does still exist today, and it's something that we need to talk about, and it's something that all of us need to fight against, because no matter what it is, any affront or any attack against human beings of any sort that are less valuable is against the gospel and it's against the call of God. Okay, like I said, I promise you that the number one, the first point was gonna be the longest. That was the longest. We are now done with the first point. Number two, God's design shows us the value of work. God's design shows us the value of work. After God creates human beings, the first thing that he does is give them a job. 
We see that he puts them in the garden to tend it and to keep it. We see in Genesis 1.28 that God commands them and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God actually gives humanity a call and a job and he says, here is this amazing, raw, untapped world. Now go and like keep it. We're not gonna talk about environmentalism or you know, making sure that we value creationism, but that's another thing that we could show about God's design, the value of earth, that mankind has been given the earth, so it is our gift to use and to enjoy, but also we should be good stewards of the gift that God has given us. But God is creative. God is organized. God brings life flourishing from places where there is chaos. And because you and I have been created in the image of God, it is our call to do the exact same thing. What does this mean? It means that there are so many more spiritual jobs than just being a pastor. Being an architect is a godly job. Being a doctor is a godly job. Being a barista is a godly job if you're making coffee for the glory of God. Because we're called to steward the earth. We're called to take care of the earth. And God has called every single one of us in here to bring order and to bring beauty into the world. I was talking to uh, one of our uh, team this, uh, this week. Uh, it's, it's Scott. He works at Harris. I'm going to put him on blast. And uh, he was telling me, I love you, Scott. He was telling me that one of the ways that he tries to put this into practice and to serve God with his work is he's like, look, when I am doing a project, I try to do everything with such excellence that when someone finds my work in 20 years, they actually know what I did and they see that I took the time to do it good. That's what being a part of the image of God is all about. That's what working for the glory of God is all about. That whatever God has given me to do, I wanna make it flourish. There's a story in uh, the, the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's in the, the, the book of Jeremiah. And what's happened in Jeremiah is that the children of Israel have actually lost their land and they're in exile in Babylon. And it's this really tragic time. It's because they've sinned and walked away from God. It's a whole other story for another time. But in this story, there are some people who are false prophets and they start saying, hey, don't worry about this place. God's gonna deliver us super soon. We're gonna get out of here. So just kind of like, don't put roots down. Don't get invested because we're moving soon. Jeremiah comes along and he says, actually, these guys are false prophets. And here's what Jeremiah says. He says, this is what the Lord says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then look at what Jeremiah says. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your wealth. As Christians, we are in exile right now. This world is not our home. We are made for another world. But while we are here, we are not just called to huddle in here and to not worry about what's happening out there. We are called to go out there and to seek the welfare of the city God has called us to. 
There, there's another amazing company. Um, it's called Four Rivers. Anybody love Four Rivers in Orlando? Anybody could go for some burnt-in sandwiches like right now. Amen. Listen to the mission statement of Four Rivers. We exist to use our God-given gifts to support the local community through exceptional products, steadfast customer service, and uncompromising integrity. That's working for the welfare of the city. Somebody in here thought that you only could serve God if you were a preacher. But I'm here to tell you, you can serve God by making briskets and Buckeyes, baby. Come on, that's what you can do. Anything that God has called you to do, you can do it with excellence for the glory of God. Some of us in here, we are, we're thinking to ourselves, I hate work. I don't like work. I, I don't enjoy it. I believe God has created you to love work. I believe he's created you to go home at the end of the day tired, but with your heart full because you've served God in the purpose that he's called you. Now, a lot of us in here, we're not quite sure how to do that yet. We don't know the purpose God has called us to. But what I wanna encourage you is wherever God has placed you, work for the good of the city in that realm. Whatever God has put in your hands right now, I guarantee you God has put something in your hands. He's given you a floor to sweep. Work for the good of the city by making that literally the best swept floor in the building. He's given you a cup of coffee to make. Be like, yo, every cup of coffee in here is gonna blow somebody's mind with how awesome it is. I'm not mailing in this cup of coffee. I, I gotta do some, some Excel spreadsheets for my boss who I hate and who's annoying and who like I wish would just do his own darn Excel spreadsheets. But like, you know what? I'm gonna figure out how to do the best Excel spreadsheets. I'm gonna color coordinate them. I'm gonna get some formulas and do the equals parentheses and put some awesome things in there because like, I'm gonna do this for, I'm gonna do Excel spreadsheets for the glory of God. And I guarantee that if you do this, that God will help you discover, walk into the potential that you've called because work is valuable. All right, number three, God's design shows us the value of marriage. God's design shows us the value of marriage. In this passage, God makes a man and a wife and he brings them together in marriage. He actually literally, God is the pastor that oversees the first marriage ceremony. It's pretty amazing. Some people believe that this is a myth, that this is just something that was kind of made up in Genesis, but this passage is quoted historically in the New Testament multiple times by both the Apostle Paul and Jesus, and it seems that the Apostle Paul and Jesus all believed in the historical significance of this passage. Now, a lot of us in here would say, Brian, I am, I am not married right now. In fact, most of us in here are single. So I just wanna let you know God also really values singleness. It says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are single, you can actually serve the Lord better than those who are married. Because those who are married are worried about pleasing their spouse. Those who are single, you just get to worry about pleasing God. And how many know also worry about finding a spouse, amen? Like, I remember I was there. I was like, oh God, I'm trying to please you, but I also have other cares as well. So hook me up, Lord, I'm serving you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Please. I haven't forgotten, don't worry. So if you are single, God can use this season, but I wanna let you know, if you are single, that what God said still applies. It is God, not good for man to be alone. It is not good for woman to be alone. So be in community. Just because you're single doesn't mean you have to live in isolation. Number three, 
Number three is the value of marriage. Number four, God's design shows us the value of obedience. God's design shows us the value of obedience. Obedience, not a very sexy word in 2019. No one's hyped about obedience. But I think it's really important to see this, that God actually says to the man, he says, hey, here is a beautiful, amazing garden. This is awesome. I've blessed you. Eat everything in it. Enjoy everything in it. You're ruling it. But there is a rule that I'm going to ask you to follow. There is a tree. Do not eat the fruit of the tree. God is actually saying that I am drawing a line in the sand and I'm saying, you need to stay on this side of the line. Now, God loves everyone. He loves every single human being even if they have totally walked away from him. I really believe God actually loves Satan, like he loves people, but he also is not going to force anyone's hand. He has given us a free will to choose whether or not we want to serve him. And in fact, if there is no free will, there can be no love. God created free will so that we could choose to say, God, I love you and I wanna be with you. Or God will respect us enough to give us the ability to walk away. So this is this opportunity of God saying, choose whether you want to love me and experience the blessing of being with me or choose to reject me and walk away. And this choice is still here today. This is the choice that every single one of us have. Now, we might not get blessed in the way that we think, like I'll love God and obey God and I will have a huge car and an awesome house and uh, the, the, the best of everything. But when we follow God, when we serve God, we get the peace of knowing that he is with us. We get hope for heaven. We get the opportunity to know that our life is being used on purpose for his glory. And when we don't follow God, ultimately it's going to lead to devastation. That is the promise of God. The sorrows of those who follow another God will be multiplied. And so we do get to choose even today, am I going to obey God? Or am I going to walk away from that blessing? This isn't legalism. This isn't like God's gonna love you more or accept you more if you obey him. God's love and acceptance is available to everyone. His grace is available to everyone, but we have the opportunity to say, God, I love you enough that I wanna walk with you or not. The last thing that God's design shows us, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and finish our night out with worship. The last thing that God's design shows us is the value of walking with God. The value of walking with God. It says in the last verse of this scripture that the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Now, that is a statement about their clothing situation, to be sure. But I also believe that it is a statement about their spiritual and emotional conditions, both to themselves and to God. And what I truly believe is that this is the last time that any human being could ever be truly naked and truly shame-free. What I mean by that is that to be naked is to be fully known. 
And to feel no shame is to know that you are fully loved. And the truth is that every single one of us has a fear of being fully known. Because all of us are afraid that there is a deep, all of us know that there is a deep part of our heart that if someone actually were to know what is in this part of my heart, they would reject me. If someone were actually to know what is deep down in there because of sin, because of my jacked up self, because of what someone else did to me, because of all of it, then I would be rejected. I don't wanna know. I don't want to be fully naked before someone. And so what do we do? We put on masks. We hide behind walls and barriers and defenses because I don't want people to actually know what's happening. I don't even want God to actually know what's happening. And so just like we're gonna learn next week that Adam and Eve put on fig leaves to try to hide as if they could hide, we do the same thing. And what I believe is and what the amazing story of the Bible is, is that even though mankind was fully known and fully loved. We walked away from that because of sin, but God loved us enough that he still fully know what was happening. He knew that we were sinners. He knew that we had walked away. He knew that we had rejected him. And guess what? He knows the junk and the jacked up stuff that's in all of our hearts. He knows it all. Nobody's pretending before God. No one's faked out God. And yet, even though you are fully known, you're fully loved. Some of us in here, our deepest fear is that someone would find out. Our deepest fear is that that secret would get out. And we are living in terror that someone's gonna discover. But the truth is that the secret's already out for God. And maybe nobody in this room, maybe no one in this world knows it, but God knows everything. And God knew everything 2,000 years ago when he sent his own son, Jesus, to hang naked on a cross, completely exposed to the world, full of shame. And the reason that he did that is so that he could pay for our sin and our guilt and our shame so that once again, God who fully knew us could wrap his arms and his love around us. The amazing thing is, and the invitation for all of us tonight is that no one in here actually has to walk in shame. Maybe you're going to experience the emotion of shame because we work, walk through junk, we walk through cobwebs on our way to freedom, but you can know tonight that God does fully know who you are and he's always known, but you can also know tonight that God fully loves you that your shame and your sin is not just forgotten about. It's not just paid for, but it's actually been demolished by the blood of Jesus on the cross. So I wanna do something tonight. I wanna invite us all just to bow our heads for a second. And I wanna take a moment and just ask God to speak to all of us. I believe that all of us in here have gunk and junk and things that we are ashamed of. And right now I believe that God wants to bring freedom. So as we sing tonight, the band's about to go into a song. I just wanna let you know that God has freedom for you. I wanna let you know 
that whatever you've walked through, God knows it. But the crazy thing is that even though that's the worst fear, God still loves you. So here's the invitation. In a moment, the band's gonna start singing and all of us are gonna have an opportunity to do business with God. If you want to sit at your seat, sit at your seat. If you wanna stand and worship, stand and worship. If you wanna come down here to this altar and kneel before God and just leave something at the altar, literally just lay it down before God and say, God, my shame is gone. I've been set free, then do it. God, we thank you. God, we love you. I ask you right now that in this moment that you would move in a powerful way, that you would actually remove shame that you would remove guilt. God, shame is only associated with the fact that we are worried that somehow we haven't been forgiven or we, don't, we aren't loved. And God, you have removed all sin, you've removed all condemnation, you've cast it as far as east is from the rest. So God, in these moments, spirit move, offer forgiveness, offer love, offer peace. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.